welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. Because they suffer from an invisible affliction, people with migraines are sometimes suspected of making up their disease in order to avoid performing unwanted duties. Even within psychology, women were once suspected of self-inducing their own migraines as a result of their inability to cope with the chaos of daily life. These days, neurobiological research has helped to establish migraine as a legitimate disease, with causes rooted in the organic structure of certain brains. However, as Rutgers professor Joanna Kepner explains, even this paradigm shift tends to imply that the feminine migraine brain differs from the masculine normal brain in problematic ways. In Not Tonight, Migraine and the Politics of Gender and Health, Kempner explores how cultural assumptions about gender and pain continue to inform how migraines are diagnosed, treated, and often stigmatized. Joanna Kempner, welcome to Office Hours. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. Um, I really love the title of this book uh, because it points to this like old joke about women making up migraines as an excuse to get out of having sex with their like overbearing husbands and you have this really hilarious line that like totally eviscerates that idea you write that um one would really not expect that a person with a knife wound or in the middle of a seizure would want to engage in sex either but like no study has ever really needed to prove that that was true and it gets right to the point that i would like to start with which is that there are like a handful of constructed criteria that our culture seems to use to decide if a given disease is real and legitimate. So what are those criteria and why is it that migraines don't traditionally seem to fit? Right. So I think that one of the things we really prioritized is seeing. Seeing is believing. And so when somebody's gushing blood from their knife wound <laughs> or having an epileptic fit, it wouldn't seem appropriate to make a pass at them. But if somebody um, has a throbbing headache, you can't see it. So I I th- the ultimate criteria for legitimacy is an identifiable biological pathophysiology. So that best case is something visible, um, a gallbladder stone or a broken bone, a tumor pressing against a nerve, something that you can scan. Mm. Um, and then second best are a series of criteria that we can use to infer something biological. So maybe a, a drug that's really effective. And if a drug is working, it has a biological mechanism. Maybe we think that there's some biological basis for that disorder. Um, or sometimes like, for example, depression or might show up as a brain scan. You know, we've seen, we've all seen those brain scans of like a depressed brain. Um, And in the absence of that, sometimes advocates will try and say that a disorder is real because it shows economic burden um, or a public health burden. So that there are these kind of uh, less tangible, but social burdens. Mm. But as we sort of go down the scale, we can see that they're not quite as effective ways of demonstrating legitimacy. Um, now migraine doesn't meet that first criteria of seeing it. It's an invisible disorder, uh, but it does meet those other criteria. So there are some drugs that work on, uh, migraine biologically. Um, you can see a migraine sort of as much as you can see anything on a, as on a brain scan. Uh, there are genetic, um, 
studies that can show uh, genetic forms of some migraine. They've actually genetically engineered a mouse to show characteristics of a migraine. Um, and they, um, they've been um, certainly able to show that migraine has, is a great public health burden. Uh, but what I think that this shows or these criteria show is that legitimacy isn't something that's there or not there. It's something that exists on a continuum. So it's possible for migraine to be considered a really legitimate thing, right? And I'm sure that all of you who have migraine out there are like, yeah, some people take this really seriously. But it's also possible for migraine to sound completely made up, right? A complete excuse in a different venue, in a different context. Um, and migraine exists so it exists somewhere in that continuum, not completely made up, not completely real. Yeah, yeah. So you, you write that like there's been this sort of recent, I don't know, quote unquote discovery of like a, a biomedical kind of cause of migraine, and we've been starting to think about it more as a disease rather than as a symptom. But like that still hasn't provided the kind of legitimacy that experts have been hoping for, right? But before we get to that. Um, I guess I was wondering if we could start by backing up a little bit and talking about like the background of how the, the medical community used to think about migraines, right? And you explained that the migraine used to be associated with a psychological pathology, like the existence of a so-called migraine personality. Um, one of my favorite stories in the book that illustrates that comes when you write about a visit that the author Joan Didion takes to her doctor who like tells her that she's probably got an obsessive personality disorder that is causing her migraines. Could you tell us what happens there and like what it shows about the relationship between migraine and identity? Yeah, sure. So Joan Didion wrote this really famous essay called In Bed. It's all about her migraines. Um, she's one of the most famous people who has migraines and the essay is, is really spot on even now. Um, but to understand this essay in which she tells this story, you have to understand she's writing it in 1970, and it is the height of psychosomatic medicine. And migraine was a really important disorder in the era of psychosomatic medicine um, because um, psychosomatic medicine was really about psychology married to biology. And migraine, doctors then thought migraine was biological. They really did. They thought it was about the vascular system expanding and constricting. But they thought that the real cause of migraine was psychological. And mm. to be more precise, they located it in the form of these migraine personalities. Mm -hmm. So the migraine personality um, that Joan Didion was told she has was somebody who was ambitious, successful, competitive, and efficient. Now, this was largely based on the businessmen, um, and they were men, who would go to migraine to these headache specialists. Um, and the most important doctor at the time would just tell his patients to take a break every day and play a game of squash, mm. right? That was the kind of executive uh, treatment at the time. But the women patients at the time were treated very differently. They were also ambitious and uptight, but of course that was a behavior was exhibited in very different ways. Um, they were sexually frigid. Uh, they had to maintain a very clean house, no matter how sick they felt. Now, Joan Didion, so she goes to the doctor in 1970, and she's told that she has the migraine personality. And she says, um, and he says to her, I suppose you're a compulsive housekeeper. And she responds, actually, my house is kept even more negligently than my hair. But the doctor was right nonetheless. Perfectionism can also take the form of spending most of the week writing and rewriting and not writing a single paragraph. 
And I thought that was so telling because Joan Didion is not your typical housewife, right? right? (laughs) (laughs) But she still found this idea of a migraine personality really compelling. And it says so much about why people were willing to adopt this idea. And I I think it really goes back to this... um, this idea Ian Hacking talks about, about the interactive kind. Migraine personality is an interactive kind, which means that um, people start to fashion their own sense of self to meet the expectations of what they're told they're supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. So she does the hard work of the doctor, right? She's like, oh, I'm obsessive? Well, I guess I'm obsessive in this one particular way. Right, right. So I must I must be uptight in that, in that way. Um, and I, you know, I just think that that's so completely fascinating that she doesn't reject it out front, just up front, like the, the way you might expect her to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one might expect that the treatment of migraine as a personality disorder might have gone away after the discovery of a neurobiological mechanism underlying that symptom. You're right, though, that um, focusing on the brain like as an organ rather than this idea of like the migraine being located in the mind hasn't really helped all that much. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so you can imagine that it's not just patients who are really troubled by this psychosomatic history. I mean, by 1970, when Joan Didion was writing this, there are doctors and headache journals saying that women are psychopathic, right? Women mm-hmm. with migraine are psychopathic. Some are homicidal in nature when they have migraines. This is a repressed hostility. And today's headache doctors are really troubled by that history. They're troubled because they think, I think rightly so, that it stigmatizes their headache patients. They think it stigmatizes their own profession. Um, And they really want to promote both headache medicine and they want to make their patients feel better. So for about the last 30 years, they've put a ton of effort into promoting and a a neurobiological framework for understanding migraine. Um, And they really want that focus on the brain rather than emotions or the psyche to fundamentally alter how we understand the migraine patient and how we treat the migraine patient. But it's been really frustrating because it really hasn't changed how we think about who the migraine patient is that much. There's still this lingering idea that when people have migraines, they're kind of using it as an excuse. There's something a little bit weak about them. There's something a little bit fragile about them. And I wanted to figure that out. So I started to read the neurobiological descriptions of migraine a little bit more closely. And at first I really couldn't figure it out because science is so authoritative, you know, it's it, it, it's hard to figure these things out. But as I was reading contemporary descriptions of migraine next to my historical descriptions, I started to notice that they sounded quite a bit the same. So for example, it's true that migraine patients are no longer described as nervous or hysterical patients. Um, But they are now said to have hypersensitive, nervous brains, and that these brains overreact to even the smallest changes in their environment. And the shorthand for this in the migraine literature is that patients have migraine brains, that their migraine brains are different than regular people's brains. Some, in some self-help books, this is called a high-maintenance brain. And so migraine patients are instructed to lead very boring lives, to have really calm, restful environments. Um, so they don't upset their migraine brain. So they're no longer these high-strung white women, but their brains are sometimes referred to as divas that need to live these really boring lives. And that I found really interesting because it seems to me like the brains are given these really neurotic personalities that used to be ascribed to the person. And to me, that's just a 
neuroreduction of the psychosomatic patient. The obsessive neurotic migraine patient is now morphed into this obsessive neurotic brain. And so there are important implications to that. On one hand, the locus of responsibility has changed, right? So if if I'm not responsible for my migraines, my brain is responsible for my mi- migraines. But am I any more likable if my brain is um, neurotic? Am I a less neurotic person if I'm not neurotic but my brain's neurotic? Am mm-hmm. I any more hireable? Am I employable? Am I more reliable? I don't. I'm not sure that that it is. The moral qualities associated with migraine pretty much remain the same, and if anything, they're they're more resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your research really takes off where it starts like looking at. Um, how people internalize this this disorder um, maybe differently now than they did under this like psychosomatic paradigm, right? It was really easy to see Joan Didion going home and thinking, well, I guess I'm obsessive in this one respect, and maybe that reveals something more fundamental about me as a person. But now that it's about the brain instead of the mind, um, what does your research say about like how people are internalizing the idea of like migraine as an identity. So advocates really love the idea that they have a migraine brain. It's something they wholeheartedly embrace. It's something that they promote. Um, And it's something um, that they, I think they think relieves them a lot of the personal, of the personal responsibility that they had experienced uh, before. And so they think it decreases the stigma associated um, with migraine. They can look at the migraine brain and they can say, look, it's not my fault I have migraine. I have a real disease here. I have a real disorder. Mm. They can say, it's not me who can't stay up late and who can't drink red wine. It's my fuddy-duddy brain, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the more, and, and you know, frankly, you know, I have migraines and I, that's what I thought in the beginning too. I was really relieved to hear that I, as funny as it sounds, I was relieved to hear that I had a diseased brain. But I started to think that this is really a trap because it puts people in this really uncomfortable relationship with their own brains. And at least in Western society, who are we without our brains? Mm -hmm. Brains are such a fundamental part of our identity. And it also makes for a very uncomfortable politics of disease. So are people with migraine disabled? Um, Does their brain just work differently? Is migraine an identity? Um, Is migraine something outside of themselves or is it something really integral to themselves? I think migraine advocates are really trying to work this out. And if you're going to talk about stigma, if you want to destigmatize something, talking about yourself as having a really diseased brain is quite possibly not the way to go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're talking about, you, you mentioned that like you suffer from migraines too, and you write in the preface that um, like that has really illuminated your research into this topic, right? But to really explain what that means in a sociological context, you kind of contrast your own approach to migraines to neurologists and other headache specialists, many of whom, it turns out, also suffer from the affliction that they study. You write that they believe the scientific process renders their own experience with headache irrelevant, that their knowledge, and indeed the best knowledge, is disembodied and fully removed from the knower. Could you tell us a bit about why your research is so committed to the identity of the knower? And in general, like, how does that commitment relate to the practice of what you're calling feminist science? So I think this is a really great question, and it really gets to the heart of my projects. I'm super glad that you asked it. 
Um, and so there are also, that means that there are a lot of reasons why I think it's important. <laughs> so bear with me. The first reason is that, you know, biomedicine has so much authority and sociology has so little, <laughs> particularly when it comes to medicine. Biomedicine is built on this idea that it's objective knowledge. Um, and for feminists, when we entered the field, uh, I say we as though I was one of them, <laughs> but I was just a wee thing. But as feminists entered the, the field, uh, they critiqued knowledge for having this distinctly male bias. And, um, and so just as part of that feminist tradition, I knew that if I was going to critique the field, people had to know where I was coming from. But the other part of that is, like I said, because biomedicine has authority and sociology has so little authority. And then on top of that, when I started this research, I was maybe like 25 years old I'm a young I was a young woman um walking into a field site where I was studying the top neurologists and headache specialists in the world many of whom most of whom were over the age of 50 um almost all men mostly white um and I'm like yeah I'm a graduate student in sociology will you talk to me and I didn't have any authority. Nobody thinks sociology has anything to say about medicine. I mean, it's not intuitive, right? You have to explain it to them. Um, and so coming at it as having some embodied knowledge actually gave me a little bit of a soapbox, right, to speak mm. from. It's not as though the people I was studying up cared that much, but it, it did enable me to say, hey, you have migraine too. And it's not as though that doesn't affect the kind of knowledge that you produce. Um, I didn't want anybody to say to me, your migraines make your work less objective without me being able to say, hey, the people who are making this knowledge about migraines, they also have my, you know, they also have migraine. So, you know, it's the same, I, I, I felt like it leveled the playing field a little. And they have much more pernicious, I think, problems in terms of objectivity, in terms of you know, the kinds of pharmaceutical funding they get. Mm. Um, the third thing, I think, is that when I started the project, I was really very private about the fact that I had migraines. I didn't even, hadn't really admitted to myself how debilitated I was by my migraines. Mm. Um, and in fact, over the project, my migraines got much worse. But doing the work, in a funny way, politicized me. Um, and it gave me something to say to people who had migraines. I mean, in part because I was studying people who had such severe migraines and who were struggling so much to have a voice, how could I not articulate the own struggles that I was going through? They were being so brave. I also had to be brave. Um, and, um, and I really wanted to give people who have migraines a chance to read somebody giving voice to what it felt like to have migraines, particularly in the preface. I, wanted to book the book as an experience for somebody who had migraines. I wanted the book to be radically legitimating. I wanted somebody who had migraines to read this and say, like, I feel at least in some part understood. Mm -hmm. And then there's one last thing I really wanted to do. There's something in sociology. There's a, there's a feeling in sociology that people engage in me search and it's looked down upon. And I feel really strongly about this. Um, but I think if we're honest, as sociologists, we're all engaged in research mm -hmm. to some degree. And we're all filtering what we study against our lived experience, even if we're studying phenomena that is very different from our personal lives. 
insider accounts have advantages and they also have disadvantages. Um, and that's the same with outsider accounts. Um, and in fact, I think that there are other positions in our lives that have much more pernicious or much more, uh, much stronger effects on the kinds of research that we produce, um, even though we don't take them into account. For example, the structure of academia, the structure of the job markets, whether or not we're tenure track, whether or not we have tenure, all of these things have really profound effect on the knowledge that we produce, much more so than whether or not we're insiders or outsiders. But for some reason, doing me search is looked down upon. Um, so I do think that as sociologists, it's important that we account for what we can, uh, and we keep in mind, we can't possibly articulate all the biases in our work. Mm. Uh, but I also felt like it was really important to sort of stand up for this yeah. and mm -hmm. say like, this is a really important strand of, of, of thought in sociology. And, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to keep it real. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm interested in the, the thing you said about being really personal about suffering from migraines when you began the project, was it because of like some of these issues related to like the legitimacy of doing me search? Can you tell me what do you mean? Yeah, like what? why? I guess I'm curious why you'd be nervous about revealing that you suffered from migraines. Oh, it wasn't about the me search. It was about the stigma around migraines. Yeah. I felt like I really wanted to. And in a funny way, like, I didn't even want to admit there was a stigma around migraines because like, it was such a, I, I want migraines to be such a non-issue in my life that I didn't want to walk around being like, my migraines are stigmatizing because that would have made it an issue. Totally. I wanted migraines to be something that were like a non-issue in my life. So for me to study migraines made it an issue in my life. Hmm. So I felt, I didn't want to be known as the migraine girl, which I have a feeling I am known as. <laughs> so I guess if I'm going to be known as the mind green girl, I have to do it loud and proud. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I want to come back to the gender thing to finish up. Um, because you, you do have a really interesting chapter um, in which you acknowledge that like men suffer from migraines as well as women, but you point out that men are more often diagnosed with what are called cluster headaches. So uh, could you just dis describe the distinction there? And um, what does that tell us about the role that gender plays in the legitimation of pain um, in the medical community and maybe in society at large? Sure. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to straighten out the epidemiology. Yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So about 36 million American adults have migraine. It's incredibly prevalent. And about one quarter of those people are men. So... That is a lot of men, yeah. right? A huge number of men. Cluster headache is a very, very rare disorder. It's um, probably fewer than a million American adults have cluster headache. Um, about two-thirds to three-quarters of those people, maybe only a half, it, the epidemiology is changing, are men. So many more men have migraines than have cluster headache. But within cluster headache, it's a more male-dominated disorder, which mm. I think is what you meant. But I just wanted yeah. to be very clear for yeah. everybody what it, what it, what it means. Mm -hmm. Cluster headache is a headache disorder that in many ways is um, looks a lot like migraine. It's severe. It's invisible. It's poorly understood pain. It happens in the head. Um, and it's neuro neurological. And it's definitely debilitating. 
Um, but it's also, a, sometimes when I tell people about cluster headache, they think like, oh, is this just the male version of migraine? And I want to be very clear that it's not. It's a very, it's a much more debilitating form of headache. It's a very severe headache. It lasts a very short time, 15 to 90 minutes. People can have up to eight attacks in a day. Um, people who have cluster headache are devastated by it. I mean, it is really an unbelievably bad form of pain. Um, what is interesting to me about it is I really wanted to understand how pain got talked about and understood when it was masculinized, when it was male. And cluster headache is highly masculinized. Um, so now we think about cluster headache as like 50 to 75% male, but in the recent past, it was thought to be about 90% male. That epidemiology has only recently changed. Mm. And that maleness has been translated into this super masculine disorder of what cluster headache is. So it's thought to be like this head banging, very physically punishing severe pain that drives the strongest of men to engage in like really physical acts, like doing push-ups you know, running, sprinting, um, you know, banging things against their heads. Um, but they also are supposed to have like a really physical masculine appearance as well. So they're talked about as having uh, a leonine face. So having like a lion-like face, being mesomorph, so kind of stocky and muscular, um, and also having a masculine character. So being hard drinking, smoking, being, having tattoos, being working class, um, having being risk-taking. Um, cluster headache patients, I've been told, are much more fun to have parties with, uh, whereas migraine patients are like really boring and dull and you wouldn't want to hang out with them. Um, and, um, and so they're this really masculinized body patients and even women patients who with cluster headache are talked about in masculine ways. So the women patients are thought to also look like lions mm. and have pitted skin and be really masculine. Now there've been a bunch of studies that have shown that this isn't true, right? There's no empirical evidence for these stereotypes, but the stereotypes really persist. Um, and the stereotypes have clin are clinically meaningful so that there have been all of these treatments, for example, trying to see if people with cluster headache have more testosterone in their system and then when it, they found out that they didn't have more testosterone the studies were then like well maybe they just are more sensitive to the little testosterone they have mm. and then there were all these treatments like maybe if we inject them with testosterone you know there are all of these testosterone related yeah. studies um so what does this have to do with legitimacy people with cluster headache do experience a legitimacy deficit mm -hmm. however they manage it by drawing symbolic boundaries between themselves and migraine. Migraine's considered wimpy, it's girly, it's, you know, the headache is like completely a wussy thing to have, whereas yeah. cluster headache is like a really masculine thing to do, to have. So both patients and doctors are really, they really draw on that masculine discourse. And the reason why I think that chapter is important is because it shows that gender is fundamental to constructing legitimacy, that moral character is fundamental to constructing legitimacy, and that there is a masculine way to talk about pain, that this highly gendered way of talking about migraine isn't inherent to the migraine, that it's ascribed to, to, the, to the various kinds of pain we experience. Hmm. Well, that's a fascinating chapter, and it's a really great book. Um, the title is Not Tonight, 
Migraine and the Politics of Gender and Health from um, the University of Chicago Press. Joanna Kempner, thank you so much for coming by Office Hours. Thanks for having me. This week's episode of Office Hours featuring Joanna Kempner was produced and hosted by Matt Gunther as a part of the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. You can find more written content about the sociology of health and gender, along with all kinds of new social science research, on our website, thesocietypages.org.